Lord, we come this morning desiring that you would have your way with us. Lord, just simply use me as your messenger, as your mouthpiece, Lord, for this text that you have breathed out for our benefit. And Lord, would you, would you stir us up to want to not only believe what you say, but to hunger after it. Lord, what we know not, would you teach us? What we have not, Lord, would you give us? What we are not, would you make us, Lord? We pray this. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. If I were to ask most people in a typical church to list off um, their favorite attributes of God, which is kind of a weird thing to say, what's a favorite attribute of God, probably the number one attribute that we would get would be the grace of God. The problem, though, is that oftentimes in our American Christian culture, the idea of God's grace is often misunderstood. For some people, grace is Pandora's box to live like you want because you know, hey, you're saved by God's grace, nothing's going to be changed. Hey, go after it, live like the world. Then there are other people who view God's grace as license to basically not work on their walk with God, to, to let go and to let God is the old statement. And somehow God, by virtue of his Holy Spirit, is going to do all these things in your life. You don't have to do You just enjoy the journey. And friends, those are kind of distortions of grace. And yet grace is a beautiful, wonderful attribute of God. It's a wonderful truth that he then gives to us. And here in James 4, 6, we're given that beautiful assurance that God gives more grace. But this statement isn't given in isolation. It would be wrong for us to come to this text and simply say, let's find out about grace and let's just talk about grace because what James is saying here comes in a greater context. Let me remind you of what the context is. We read this passage to help us with that context. James is in the middle of a scathing exposure of the presence of worldliness in the church. A church where we're told here quarrels and fights exist because sinful hearts have allowed the wisdom of the world to take root and so shape and fashion those desires that are already in their hearts, which produces then this kind of behavior. He says, you desire and you do not have, and you covet and you cannot obtain, so you murder, you fight, and you quarrel. I mean, if, if James were writing this letter to our church, this would not be good news. This would not be a good testimony for us. He goes on, he says, the evidence of your worldliness is laid bare when you examine your prayer life. You don't pray because you have lost the belief that God will satisfy. And if you do pray, you're only praying to satisfy your own sinful desires. You just want God to be your genie to give you what you want. Those are the symptoms of worldliness in the church. And then James turns from those symptoms to describe the true diagnosis of worldliness in the church and this is what he says. He says three things. You're committing spiritual adultery. And he says, by virtue of committing spiritual adultery, where your affections who were supposed to be for God have been turned now for the world, ultimately you have become a friend of the world, and in doing that, secondly, you're an enemy of God. And then thirdly, he says, you have given into your sinful desires. So friends, this is bad news for God's people. This is bad news for those who don't know God, those who are unbelievers. This is the condition of their heart. This is the struggle of all of us who are seeking to live our lives to the glory of God. Why? Because we all struggle with worldliness. See, I love the fact that as we've gone through James, he's picking topics that affect everyone. He's picking topics that, that we know that we can't run away from and say, oh, that's not me. We all struggle with what comes out of our mouth or how we communicate. 
We all struggle with partiality because we have certain biases that are just in us that we have to struggle with. We, we all here are, are people who, who struggle with the world's wisdom entering in and shaping us. Now remember, James is speaking to a church that is primarily made up of Jews, also includes Gentiles, but they are people who are professing believers, but also are true believers. And professing believer is someone who has all the the habits and behavior of a true believer, but their hearts are actually not in tune with God. They have not been regenerated. They are going through the motions. You and I, if that person were in presence with us today, may not even know that. We might actually think this person's a godly believer, but they are simply a professor because no radical change has taken place in their heart. They are living by forms rather than from a heart of repentance and humility before God. So the bad news Spiritual adultery, enemies of God, giving into the flesh. These are all marks of immature believers as well as unbelievers. And James is seeking to expose their hearts by showing how their behavior indicates what's going on in their heart, right? How you handle partiality or favoritism is a reflection of your heart. How you handle the tongue, how you communicate with others is a reflection of what's going on in your heart. The kind of fruit that you're producing is a reflection of what is in your heart. The presence of worldly attitudes, thinking, and behavior is all a reflection of your heart. And so James is saying, if you find that your heart has been adulterous, is in opposition to God, is giving into your sinful desires, and that the cancer of worldliness has spread into your being, all is not lost. Now see, he's giving a scathing rebuke, but he's also providing gospel-centered hope. And that is where we find ourselves today. There is hope, there is a remedy, there is a prescription for you There is a way forward that results in reconciliation that moves you toward maturity in Christ. And that is why James says, God gives more grace. See, those are sweet words, aren't they? (laughs) Because we're all part of verses one through five. And we desperately need to hear verse six, the first part. God gives more grace. The grace of God is a wonderful medicine for the cancer of worldliness in all its forms. And so this morning, I would like for us to think of this passage in these terms. Hope for the believer whose heart is affected by worldliness. And if you remember, we we looked at this passage by identifying the symptoms of worldliness and then the diagnosis of worldliness. And so now verses 6 through 10 are God's prescription for that worldliness. So how do I get back from being entangled in the snare of worldliness? I see the symptoms, I understand the diagnosis, but how do I get back to glorifying God when I've been guilty of spiritual adultery? Well, that's what we're going to look at today. Let's just think, though, about the structure of of these few verses, verses 6 through 10. We have like a sandwich going on here. Verse 6 and verse 10 are the the bread, so to speak, and verse 7 through 9 are the meat and the veggies and the mayo or even the ketchup, if that's what you put on your sandwich, right? But the point is there's a a bread on top and there's a bread on the bottom. And here's what we see. In verse 6, we have a comforting truth where grace is for the humble. In verse 10, we have a concluding reminder that exaltation is present for the humble. But in sandwiched in the middle, verses 7 through 9, we have clear instruction from James about conditions that lead to humility. Now, did you notice as we read this passage that key word in the prescription that James gives us? It's the word humility. It's, it's, it's the beginning, it's the end, and it's described in this text. We cannot escape 
or we cannot ex- expect, I should say, any escape from the bondage of worldliness without a heart and attitude of humility. And that's what James is ultimately getting at. He's saying, God gives grace, but you must be humble. And so let's jump in now to this. You know, as we're, as we're thinking about humility, I just want you to know I wrote the book on humility, and it's really good. I'm coming out with a sequel. And look, humility is so critically important for us. And yet, James now draws our attention, first of all, to what God does. What God does. See, the friends, the truth of the matter is, if, if we are not helped by God, we have no hope. The world... And its wisdom finds its way in. We allow it in. We don't put the guardrails uh, to to stop it from coming in. And as a result, it, it, it sets up shop in our heart. And without the help of God, we are, we are victims and we are prey to that worldliness. But praise God, he gives more grace. We cannot do this without him. Look at verse 6. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. First of all, I want you to notice, very simply, that he gives more grace. He is the giver of Grace, as we saw earlier in James, he's the giver of good gifts. His grace flows from heaven like like gravity, and it, it settles down through the mountains and through the rivers to the lowest place, to the humble heart. He gives more grace, but he gives more grace in particular to the humble heart. James now quotes Proverbs 3.34, which says, Toward The scorners, he is scornful, but to the humble, he gives favor, he gives grace. Charles Bridges, in his commentary on Proverbs, says this, two apostles, James and Peter, have combined with wise men to set out this rule of divine government. On no point is the mind of God more fully declared than against pride, which is the spirit of of scorning. Those who stand firm and proud against God when their sins are exposed will not benefit from God's falling grace. Grace may descend, but it will not penetrate their hearts. It drips away and is repelled by pride. But the soul of a humble heart is immersed in the sea of God's grace. Grace will find its way into the nooks and crannies of a humble heart, my friend. And this is what James is driving at. God is the giver of grace. That is his prescription to us. Now let's just kind of step back and think about what James is doing in these 10 verses. And we've, we've touched on it already, but just think about this. You know what it's like to go into the doctor's office. You go into the examination room and he asks you questions. He's trying to figure out what are the symptoms of your condition. And then he examines you. And based on the symptoms and his examination, he comes up with a diagnosis for your condition. He labels that condition. You have this. And hopefully there is a remedy or there's a medicine for the condition that you have. And if there is, the doctor will say, this is what I'm going to prescribe to you. This is what you need. Now, you know what it's like. Okay, thank you, doctor. I appreciate that. You get your prescription. Now you have to go to the pharmacy. Oh, how much we love pharmacies. Hopefully there's no pharmacists here. It's not your fault. But you wait in line, and then you give your card, and they take it, and they put your number on the screen, all that kind of stuff. You finally come back, and the pharmacist says, we need to make sure you have a consultation. Right? And so you, you carry the prescription with the, 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 the load of papers that you got with it, right, that you're supposed to read. You go over and consult, and they pretty much tell you what's in bold writing on the papers. Finally, you can leave, right? But the thing is, just giving the, giving the prescription isn't sufficient. 
because we need to listen to the instructions about the prescription. In other words, God gives grace, and that grace certainly is a wonderful thing, but that grace must be given to a humble heart. There is a condition, there's a qualifier. God only gives grace to the humble heart. And that shouldn't come as any surprise. The proud heart won't receive God's diagnosis for their condition. They'll just say, that's not not what's going on here at all. But the humble heart will say, thank you for exposing my heart to show me what is there. Now what do I need to do? Friends, this is the kind of God that we have. He is sovereign, he is all-knowing, he's unchanging, he's honest, he's truthful, he's a loving doctor to give his children a true and honest diagnosis. Now I understand, it's hard to hear at times. But if we are entangled with the wisdom of the world and we're entrenched in it, sometimes those hard things become offensive to us. And God is not the problem, and his grace is not the issue. It's our heart that is the issue. And so the question is, will we listen to his exposure? Will will we listen to what he has to say about our condition? That is critically important. So God's grace is his undeserving favor towards sinners, and it comes to us in many forms, doesn't it? It comes by means of wisdom, peace, Insight, understanding, forgiveness, strength, those are just to name a few. But this is what he does, friends. The humble heart, to the humble heart, he gives more grace. Can I just visualize it like that? Gives grace to the humble, and he's opposed to the proud. And if you're a follower of God, which one do you think will give evidence to your true condition? This is a call for all of us then to be humble. This is what God does. He gives more grace. Now, secondly, we see what God expects. He's the giver of grace, but he expects us to respond to his grace with humility. The idea here of submission before God is just another way of saying humble yourselves before God. Verse 7, it says, submit yourselves therefore to God. It's it's a synonym for saying, be humble before God. Humility, however, in our context, is somewhat a a watered-down attribute for a person. It's not not the kind of attribute that's highly sought after in today's culture, is it? On one hand, there is false humility, which is simply putting on an act to basically get what you want to satisfy your own selfish desires. You want to give the appearance of humility, but in your heart, you know you're not. You're just using it as a tool. No one likes false humility. On the other hand, humility is often considered weak in our context. It's considered to lack power, to lack conviction, to lack passion. And it's only for those who are losers. But that's because we've been overrun by worldly thinking that lifts up pride and the pursuit of personal agendas and the glory of independence or self-assertion over submission. And what the worldly mind wants to say is, assert yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. (laughs) Assert yourself. You've got the power. You're number one. You can do it. You don't need any help. You are your own person. But God's way is through humility. And true humility is submissive. And because we want to be clear this morning, I need to make sure that you understand that true conversion comes only through humility. You can't have true conversion walks down the path through pride. Those things don't work together. Now, you might be a proud person, and God breaks through that pride 
with the word of God, but the result of that is going to be humility to say, yes, God, this is my condition. And so I now bow the knee to you in all humility. (laughs) So humility is absolutely necessary for conversion. It submits to the lordship of Christ and acknowledges that we are lost and headed for hell unless we see ourselves as sinful creatures in need of God's help. So submit literally means to put in order under. It assumes that there is an authority structure. And we find authority structures all over the place, don't we? We live with authority structures. We certainly are to submit to government authorities. There's submission that takes place in marriage. There's submission to those who are our bosses, even coworkers. And sometimes that changes, doesn't it? In the the business world, you might be in charge of one meeting, but you go into another meeting and your coworker who's a peer is in charge of that meeting. So you're shifting your, your submission to their given responsibility in that context. We're to submit to the police. We're to submit to those road workers which have signs that say, go and stop. By the way, you're to submit to that school bus driver who has the stop sign out on the red flashing lights. That means stop. We submit to one another. We submit to TSA agents when we go to the airport. We submit to Christ and Christ submits to the Father. See, authority and submission is not a bad thing. It's how things work. It's the attitude behind that authority and submission that is what makes it work well. And it's not just about what, it make, what makes it work. The point is, a right heart in both of those situations seeking to glorify God is going to function quite smoothly. So submission has to do with authority. What was Satan's greatest sin? He desired to be God. He wanted his throne. He wanted his authority. He wanted to put himself in the place of God. He did not want to submit. There was no place for humility in him. Why? Because he was full of pride. Now, friends, there's a difference between being humble and being humbled. Being humbled is when someone puts us in our place, or when someone exposes what is in our hearts. And friends, there are times when as we're studying God's word, or you're listening to God's word preach, and God is at work in you, you are humbled by what you hear is true about you that is revealed through the word of God. And the question then is how you respond to that. To be humble is when we are willing to submit to the proper authority that God has placed over us and has revealed our sinfulness. And so we say, okay, yes, you're right. So what does it look like? What does humility look like that is the recipient of more grace? Well, we have now in these few verses three couplets. Now, they're like, like jackhammers. They're, they're commands for us to pay attention to and to obey, but the three couplets really identify three common Um, expectations that God has for us to be humble. He expects our loyalty, he expects our purity, and he expects our seriousness about sin. Let's look at those three together. First of all, he expects a loyal heart. What does it say here? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. This is a, a couplet In other words, both of these things work together. Here's here's the negative, here's the positive. The negative is resist the devil. The positive is draw near to God. So first of all, resist the devil. This word resist is a military metaphor, which means to stand against, as in combat. So we need to be vigilant, to be watchful, to have an enemy who wants to keep before us Uh, the the temporary and seductive pleasures of the kingdom of self. He's constantly wanting to to nurse us, to to give into our sinfulness. And we need to be aware of his tricks. They're called schemes, or if you have the King James, wiles. We need to be faithful soldiers in this very important war. And of course, the parallel passage 
that would help us understand this would be Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. And we know the passage. You've heard about it before, I'm sure. It's all about the armor of God. But notice what it says there in verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So there's a spiritual resistance going on. It's not a physical battle. But also, there's a personal resistance. There's a, there's a face-to-face thing. This is, I'm wrestling against not flesh and blood, but I am. This is, this is a battle that's personal. And also, it's, a, it's an empty resistance, meaning the tools that you typically would use to fight the battle are not the tools that God wants you to use. And we're told in the context there that the tools that we are to use are truth and righteousness and peace and faith, and salvation, and the word of God, and prayer. And friends, the enemy has invaded the territory of your heart by virtue of you allowing him in and embracing the wisdom of the world. Now the question is, are you going to let him set up shop in your heart? Are you going to let him build villages in your kingdom and somehow have his own rule there? Or are you going to do all you can with the spiritual resources that you have to fight the battle and to to rid him out of that heart? That's what James is calling them to. Resist the devil. Resist his onslaught. Resist his presence and use these gospel-driven resources to do it. And remember, Jesus faced the devil when he took Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple in an effort to tempt him. And and the devil is trying to get Jesus to give in to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. But with each temptation, what did Jesus do? He just brought out the word of God and countered those temptations. And when we face the devil, it's not just for one battle. It's, It's a war. It's an ongoing war with many battles. So he might flee one day or one afternoon, but he's going to be back. And he's going to wait for you to get settled. He's going to wait for you to kind of be ready to to open a door and to let the wisdom of the world in. And he's going to find his way and start digging his trenches. And James is saying, this is a matter of loyalty. Who are you going to actually fight against? And who are you going to fight for? Resist the devil. And we're told here that when we resist the devil, that he will flee from you. Not he might flee, he will flee. Now here's some ways that we can can resist the devil. It's not an exhaustive list, but some things to think through. First of all, by knowing what is true, right, and good. That means that you're eager to learn. You're eager to be in God's word. You're, you're, you're trying to figure out what is right, what is good, what is true, so that when his temptations come, you can say, aha, I know that's not true. Secondly, it's being aware of Satan's tactics, his schemes, the way he, he tempts you in particular. Third, it's recognizing areas in your life that may be weak. We're not all the same. Now, we certainly have certain similar temptations and struggles, but for each person, that temptation and that struggle is going to come through different avenues. To be sure, Satan knows that. Let me just back up a little bit. Sometimes we give Satan a lot more credit than he deserves. He is not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. He's limited in that. But he's been around a long time. And he knows human nature so well because he's seen it over and over and over again. So he knows what typically is going to work with you. But that can't be guaranteed. And sometimes we think that he's omniscient. He's just a very gifted creature. And you give away things by opening your mouth, by choosing to do certain things, to let him know what's in your heart. And we, we, we get this today, I think, a lot better when it comes to being online. You know, th- those, those shoes that you were looking at, they pop up, don't they, as an ad, right? 
that recipe you were looking at, that comes up too, or that, that vacation spot. So you're, you're, you're just doing something innocently, and then all of a sudden these things are popping up, these things are popping up, these things are popping up. Now, I'm not saying they're Satan, all right? So I'm not saying that about Google or anything like that, right? But what I'm saying is that helps us understand they didn't know those things until we entered those things. Satan doesn't know what's in our hearts specifically until we communicate it, until we do it, until he observes us watching it or whatever it might be. And then he knows this is how I can get in. Resist the devil, friends, and he will flee. So know what is true and right. Be aware of Satan's tactics. Recognize the areas in your life that may be weak. Be discerning to recognize the temptation that is coming. So just know and be discerning about how it happens. Don't just be easily deceived. Be alert. And then I think finally, turn to Christ through his word when you're tempted. That should be the first place that we go. So friends, we may resist the devil one day, but we know the battle will continue. So that's the first part, resist the devil. Secondly, draw near to God. Now friends, it's one thing to resist the devil. It's another thing to draw near to God. It's not enough to resist. We must also draw near. So you can go fight the battle, but you need to fight the battle and draw near. So this is a clarion call to all Christians to return to God, to come back to God, to come before God in humility, to once again enjoy a deep fellowship with God. And so the assumption here is that these people are in the midst of quarrels, they're in the midst of wars, and and those are the result of the world's wisdom being embraced in their hearts and producing now this ugly fruit. And so James is saying, listen, one of the ways you show yourself to be humble before God is that recognizing what's going on in your heart and then coming to him, drawing near to him. In the Old Testament, the idea of drawing near to God was an expression for the one who approached God in penitence and humility. Let's look at a few verses together here. Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their heart is far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. This is a negative example. They draw near with their mouth, the autonomy with their lips, but their hearts are far from it. These, this drawing near has to be a heart drawing near. It can't just be a mere formality. It can't just be mechanical. Positively, Psalm 73, 28 says, but for me it is good to be near God. This is what David is saying. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. It's good to be near God. Then Jeremiah also helps us out. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I'm drawing near with all my heart. And then the psalmist, Psalm 145, verse 18 says, the Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. And there's lots more we could turn to, but can't read them all. But let's just think through now, how do we draw near, just practically speaking? And there's nothing going to be super amazing here about what I'm about to say. This is basic, standard Christianity 101. It begins with immersing yourself in his word. <laughs> Friends, we, we can't expect to be humble and to fight the battle and to draw near to God if we are not spending time in his word. Now, certainly you're here at church, which is a great discipline to have. We need to be gathering together for corporate worship to be under the ministry of the word. That's great. I'm glad that you're here. But I want to plead with you, take the Bible home with you. Feed on it on a a personal level. Read it. Listen to it. Meditate it on it. Study it. Memorize it. Secondly, it continues by gathering with the saints to worship God on Sunday morning. You know, we sang a, a, a song here this morning that was a song of aspiration. We're saying, God, I'm going to do this. I'm going to give you my heart. I'm going to give you my soul. And you know, we fail at that. But the point is we're, we're, we're shooting for something. 
all right? And that's a good thing. And we come to worship, and we want to praise God for who he is, and we want to say, God, our desire is to do this. It's also cultivated through personal prayer and joining in with corporate and public prayer. Have you ever thought about this? When, when we have our pastoral prayer on a Sunday morning, it's not just for the elder to pray. That person is leading our congregation in a corporate, united prayer before God. And your attention and your focus with that prayer is all part of the process of drawing near to God. It's evident in your desire and willingness to serve the Lord by using your gifts for his glory. It's encouraged by the obedience of baptism. It is reinforced by the celebration and participation in the Lord's Supper. So to draw near to God means more than repentance. We come near to God to worship him, to serve him, to meet with him, to seek help, to gain assurance, as well as to repent. I tried to kind of think of what does this actually look like, this, this, this couplet. And I came up with a, with a magnet, that Christians, in a sense, are like a magnet here. Because a magnet both repels and attracts. And the idea is that we are to repel the, the, the schemes of the devil. We're, we're, to, we're to send him away. But, oh, we want to allow this compelling attraction to be present between us and God. Paul says in Ephesians 2.13, But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We've been brought near. And James is saying, but you can actually know, go nearer through the ministry and by the reality of the grace of God. We can grow in our maturity to become more and more like Christ. This is a, a new nearness. Well, oh, I guess I had those there. Let's look at the second thing now. Not only does he expect a loyal heart, he expects a pure heart. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Kent Hughes is a pastor who used to the pastor of the college church in Wheaton, Illinois, um, in his commentary, shared this story. I thought it was helpful for us. He says, when I was growing up, the newspapers and magazines were full of a famous gangster named Mickey Cohen. It seems that Mickey Cohen once attended an evening evangelistic meeting and appeared interested. And as a result, many Christian leaders began to visit him, imagining what an impact his conversion would make. After one long evening service, he was urged to open his heart to let Christ in based on Revelation 3.20. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will go in and eat with him and he with me. Cohen did this, but as the month passed, it was evident he had not left his life of crime. And when he was confronted about this, he respond, his response was that he that no one had told him he would have to give up his work or his friends. After all, there were Christian football players, Christian cowboys, and Christian politicians. Why not a Christian gangster? Now, friends, James has been calling for a single-minded loyalty to God. Resist the devil, draw near to him. And he's used the term double-minded before to describe a person who was a friend of the world and trying to be a friend with God. But a person who's double-minded is trying then to, to serve God and serve self, but that just doesn't work. That's why it says this person's unstable in all his ways. And now James is speaking to us about our purity, about having a clean body as well as a clean heart. He says, cleanse your hands. And that speaks of keeping the outward clean. It's talking about our actions. And then he says, purify your hearts. And that's speaking about inward cleansing, about our affections, about our heart, about our motives, about our desires. Now, I think we would say that there are five words that moms are definitely known for. 
And it's these words. Did you wash your hands? You know what it's like. Kids are coming to the dining room table. And what does mom say? Before you come and sit down, you got to go wash your hands. Did you wash your hands? Yes, mom, I washed my hands. Okay, good. When you come out of the restroom, mom says, did you wash your hands? When they sneeze, mom says, go and wash your hands. When they've been outside playing in the yard with their friends and are coming inside, mom will say, go and wash your hands. And make sure you use soap. Have you ever thought about how many times a day you wash your hands? Start counting. Five? Ten? Twenty? Well, it all depends on what you're doing, right? I mean, if you're handling eggs or some bacon, you probably want to wash your hands. And you might have to wash your hands a few times. If you blow your nose, you need to wash your hands. If you're petting your dog or your cat, you need to wash your hands. If you're taking out the garbage, you need to wash your hands. If you're visiting a friend in the hospital, you're washing your hands, or at least you're putting the sanitizer on it. I don't know if that actually, actually does anything. I could be wrong. It might kill something on the surface, but my, my hands always feel kind of weird and grody, right? And I need to wash my hands after I've used the sanitizer, right? Now, the language James is using here is consistent with what we have in the Old Testament because there were priestly regulations about how to wash your hands, how to, how to wash utensils, how to wash garments, all kinds of things, how to purify things, how to, how to make sure people were pure so they could be ceremonially clean. I don't know if you've ever been to Israel and built, been to the, the wall and there is a place where, where they go, and you can see this is a, a ceremonial washing thing. It's always interesting to me. I was only there for a little time, but you have some people that go in there, and they're doing, I mean, they're doing it all, right? I mean, they're, they're getting all the parts. They're letting the things drop and the water drop, and they're, they're, they have a whole routine. And then I see someone else who's kind of running late. He comes in and goes, boom, right? And, and so there's different attitudes to that. But this is all ceremonial. Well, what we have here is James saying, this is not ceremonial at all. This is real. He's calling for us to cleanse our behavior as well as our hearts. Let's consider a few Old Testament passages that might help flesh this out a little bit. Psalm 24, verses 3 through 4. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Hands, heart, external, internal who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Even David in his psalm of repentance, Psalm 51, declares this, or he says this, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. He's desiring purity. He's desiring cleansing. And get this, friends, it is through cleansing and purification that we're able to draw nearer to God. This is what we have in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And the idea there is this transformation that is taking place is by means of these spiritual disciplines, by means of what we call progressive sanctification. So James is calling us to, to bring before the Lord the sin of word, thoughts, and behavior, and that the result would be a cleansed heart and cleansed hands. And friends, this is both a warning to believers that we can be overrun by the world's thinking and need cleansing, or it can be a warning for those who are unbelievers that this is actually the condition of your heart. So what Isaiah says in chapter 55, verse 6-7 is really helpful for us. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him 
into our God, for he will abundantly pardon. See, God is, God is clear. He's honest. This is your condition. This is what you look like. And here's the help. Now, I think some people, they just focus on, here's your condition, and they don't have room to listen to the help. And they say, you're a Christian God is an ogre. He's all about rules, and you can't do this, and you can't do that. Oh, but friends, God is loving because he knows the end of those sins. He knows the devastation and destruction that will come as a result of them. And he wants us to think about what is best and that is to pursue him and to be the recipient of his grace and to enjoy that grace as we live it out for his glory. Peter also reminds us, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth. Aha, so he's now giving us some indication about how purity comes. Obedience to the truth. And then Jesus in his Sermon on the Mount says, Blessed are the pure in heart, the single-minded in heart, for they shall see God. Friends, we must be people who are pursuing purity. God wants a pure heart. It is an evidence of a humble heart. So not only does he expect a loyal heart, a pure heart, but he also expects a serious heart. He's been describing this road to humility by giving, so far, four commands to follow. Resist, draw, cleanse, purify. Now James speaks to those who have been guilty of quarreling and fighting and striving for their own selfish pleasures. He confronts the presence of worldliness in their hearts by calling them to radical repentance. Notice what he says. I think there's a tone going on here. If I could imitate the tone, it might sound something like this. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Friends, this is a picture of what it means to repent. Be wretched, be mourn, weep. This is a deep repentant state of mind. To be wretched has the idea of being afflicted by the weight of sin upon the believer. Paul identifies himself in Romans 7 by saying, Oh, wretched man that I am. He understands his sinful inclination. And it weighs down on him. The idea of mourning is the, is the expression of grief and sorrow because of what we know to be true about the presence of sin in our life. And to weep denotes this outward expression then of what's going on in our hearts. Now friends, I don't think that our problem is that we're too mournful over sin. I want you to think about that. I don't think that our issue here at Gateway is that we are too troubled by our sin. I think it's the opposite. And I'm not saying it's just unique to us. I think it's unique to the body of Christ. This is where we struggle. Perhaps the weakness of the body of Christ is that we weep too little over our sin. Now, I'm not saying that people should go around like, you're just looking at their navel all day long and not embracing the wonderful truths of, of God's uh, God's gospel and what he's given us. But there's a balance to seeing the beauty of what he has given us, but also to be able to see the truth of the sin that we are struggling with and its offense to God. Do you weep over your sin? When was the last time you took a serious look into your heart and what you found there was so ugly that you turned to God in shame and wept before him? When was the last time he did that? Now, I know we all carry out our emotions in different ways. For some of you, it's just, it's blubber city, right? I mean, it's Kleenex, and you're in a closet somewhere, or I don't know. And for others, it's just, it's a trickle. But there's a, a humility of heart that says, I am broken because of this sin in my life. 
when I was in college, one of the things that happened was during Christmas break, we were all, all the college students were back from college, and we went to a Christian, Christian college. And as typically happens during Christmas, you're hanging out with your friends, you know, you can't work, it's too short of a time, that kind of stuff. And we decided to get together at our, our house, probably about 10 or so, maybe more than that, at our place. And we decided to watch a movie. That was back in the days of you had to get a video and put it in, all that kind of stuff, right? Um, and we sat down to watch this movie, and you know, it began, it was kind of funny, and kind of getting into the plot. But as the movie went on, some of the humor started to go in, into a direction that was kind of like sexual. And what was being portrayed was funny from a, a, from a technical humorous side of things. And because we were caught up in the movie and had been laughing already, we continued to laugh through the end of the movie. But when the movie was done, there was a silence in the room. There was a realization of what just took place. And we all just began to talk about it. Saying to each other, what did we just do? And why did we just do it? How did we just allow ourselves to be drawn into something that we shouldn't have been doing in the first place? We hung our heads in shame. And I'm thankful for that kind of relationship with other brothers and sisters in Christ at that moment, but we were affected by what had just taken place. And we prayed together. And friends, that's the kind of stuff that happens in our lives, isn't it? We find ourselves laughing at things that we're shocked about afterwards. What we have here is not just to repent over our sin, but it's also to change our attitude towards sin. He says, let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. Here, here's your condition. You are spiritual adulterers. <laughs> We're spiritual adulterers. <laughs> oh yeah, that's right, sure. You're spiritual adulterers. Let that settle in. Here's your condition. Here's your heart. Here's your problem. Do you see it? I'm being truthful. I'm being honest with you. Take it for what it is. And then God says, but I have more grace. <laughs> Do you want to listen to me? Do you want to listen to my grace? Do you want to understand what it means or how to receive it? See, the world has turned things upside down in our hearts. The world has taken joy over sinful squabbles. So you have believers that are doing that. Believers who are laughing about the fighting that they're entangled in. They're merry about being friends with the world and enemies of God. They take it lightly that they're committing spiritual adultery. Friends, it's not too often from an American church pulpit where the gravity of sin is held over the people of God. That's not what we want. In fact, today, an effective pastor is a good communicator. Oh, man, he was funny today. Oh, that story was great. Ah! I always loved coming and hearing that. My friends, if the only reason you're coming to hear me is because I'm funny and I'm not, I'll know, first of all, you're lying. But friends, there is a temptation to be that guy. Because people who identify themselves as Christians want that. What they don't want is the weight of sin upon their hearts. And when you don't have the weight of sin upon your hearts, you will not understand the more grace that God has for you. It is spiritual adultery to treat God as our enemy. 
So when your heart is being fashioned by the world, you become less sensitive to the things of God and you find yourself taking joy in or even laughing at the kinds of things that God calls sins. And if we're eager to follow Christ, hear this, we will learn to laugh at the right things at the right times. And the times when we laugh, because humor can be a science, meaning I can tell you a story and I can pop something in here, and the science of humor will cause me to laugh, and it's like, oh, what am I doing laughing at that? In our hearts we say, God, forgive me. And maybe we need to click it off or close the book, or shut down the computer, whatever it is. Or maybe it's walk away from a conversation that we have with people. But friends, we live in a world and among people of unclean lips, and we're bound to interact with people who sin, and that sin can be contagious. We listen to their sinful passions and their off-color jokes and their vulgar language and their scorn against God and their worldly attitudes and their beliefs and their practice, we just take in that diet and it's not surprising that it affects us and somehow even gets in us and God exposes it, friends. That is a kindness to reveal that to the heart of a believer. So James is saying to his readers, stop laughing at the things you know are an offense to God. Turn your laughter to mourning, turn your joy to gloom. Now the caveat there is this. You might hear what James is saying and even what I'm saying here today and say, well, wait a second, I thought Christianity was supposed to be joyful. It is. Humor is a wonderful gift that God has given us. I love to laugh. I love to laugh till my stomach is hurting. You know what I'm talking about, right? It's a wonderful thing. And we're not saying that there shouldn't be laughter, there shouldn't be joy. There should be. But it's a Christ-centered, gospel-driven joy. It's a joy that, that conforms to this package of what it means to be a follower of Christ. So the humble heart is loyal, it's pure, and it's serious about sin. Let's look down at this last verse. Because this is the end of the, this is the, end of the passage here. It's the it's the last piece of bread, so to speak, but he is reinforcing something. He goes back to the beginning and he adds a word of promise. At the beginning, he said, he gives more grace to the humble. Now, what he says is this. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will what? Exalt you. So there's actually a path going on. You can see from the beginning here, God gives grace to the humble. Here's the humble if you're humble, you'll be exalted, right? I mean, there's this kind of like pathway going on in this text. And what he's referring to here, and what, what James is speaking to ultimately, is this idea of maturity. This is what he's been getting at this whole time. If you are going to demonstrate yourself to be a mature follower of Christ, it's going to be evident in how you respond to these various trials. And so I'm going to talk to you about these various trials or tests, and how you respond to those tests is going to show what's in your heart. And so when you show in your heart that you're humble, God says he will exalt you. He will honor you. This is progressive sanctification. This is becoming more and more like Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit certainly works in your heart by means of the spiritual disciplines, but that Holy Spirit also expects us to act and behave in certain ways, to apply those spiritual disciplines by means of leaning on God's grace. Here's how the Apostle Paul describes the process of being more and more like Christ. Here's a couple of verses here. Um, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths, which would be worldliness. Rather, train yourself for godliness. It's work. What does it say in Philippians chapter 2? Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. This is not conversion salvation. He's saying now your walk with God, now that you're saved, you are to continue down this path of growing in your understanding of being mature as you are applying God's truth to your lives. 
So the goal for any Christian desiring to grow and be mature is to rid themselves of the wisdom of the world that feeds the sinful pleasure of our hearts. And instead, to allow the wisdom of God to continue to take root and to bear fruit steadily in our hearts. And I would, just, I would commend to you a book. It's called Spiritual Disciplines in the Christian Life by Don Whitney. And in that book, he walks you through the importance of spiritual disciplines. He takes disciplines like Bible intake, prayer, fasting, solitude, journaling, worship, the Lord's Supper, giving, serving, evangelism, as all opportunities for God's grace to then be channeled to you. In other words, the spiritual disciplines are the, are the viaducts of God's grace coming down from heaven and being channeled into your heart. Place yourself in the path of his grace by applying yourself to the spiritual disciplines, not in a legalistic way. We're not saying, oh, I read my Bible today, okay, check, now God's going to be impressed with me. No, I, I'm reading my Bible because it's like, God, you are a giver of grace. The difference there, right? I go to God in prayer, not to say, ah, okay, I did my, my you know, five or 15 minutes. No, you go and you say, it is in prayer that God is communicating grace to me. You go through these spiritual disciplines, you say, these are all channels or viaducts of God's grace coming to his children. And the more we do that, the more we are evidencing humility before him to be our God, to reveal our hearts so that we can live for his glory in a way that would honor and please him. Friends, we all need grace. We all need to pursue humility. And it is through humility that we will ultimately be lifted up. So strive for holiness, the writer of Hebrews says, without which no one will see the Lord. This is our call. Well, our time is is coming to a close, let me just quickly highlight something that I thought was just helpful for me. There's one word in verse 10 that for me, I almost skipped over. But it drew my attention last night. It's like, how come I didn't see this? It says there, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. It's this word before. In other words, we have a picture here of something about our relationship to him when it comes to this idea of grace and humility. And first of all, I just want to say there's three things. I can't flesh it out too, too much, but let's just first of all to notice this first one. The question is, are we looking to Jesus? You guys know what it's like to look out over the bay and see the fog coming over San Francisco? And usually there's two things you can see. Parts of the Golden Gate Bridge, right? And Sutra Tower rising up above the fog. Those are reference points. In the midst of the fog of your confusion, of your fighting, of your worldliness that has crept into your heart, Jesus rises up, and he is always your reference point. Get up above the clouds, look for him. Look to him. Whatever you need to do, Fight through your struggle and look to him. Secondly, when you've looked to him, now begin to listen to him. He has some things to say to you about your situation. He has some things to say that will help you navigate your way out of this fog. And finally, having done that, we are to be loyal to Jesus. See, the picture here is of the humble person coming before the Lord, the idea there is bowing and seeing that all of my life is ultimately worshiping him. That's a humble heart, friends. A humble heart that has been the recipient of God's grace. It's a wonderful picture. It's a wonderful goal. We're all on the journey. We're all struggling. Humility is not a one-time thing. Humility is a process of God's word being applied and our willingness to embrace it and to seek to live it out. Lord, help us today as we contemplate what it means to apply grace, how we go about navigating out of our sinful, 
and wicked hearts that have been affected by the wisdom of the world. Lord, we praise you that you are a kind of great physician who understands our symptoms, is willing to give the right diagnosis, but also provides the wonderful medicine of grace. And Lord, may we not take it lightly. May we take it seriously. May we do our part to take advantage of the gifts that God has given us and to do so in a way that would honor and please him. Lord, I just pray for my friends who are here this morning that have, have sat under your word, who are wrestling in their hearts with the fog of confusion or mess that is in their life today. Or maybe it's a, a sin that just has, that has been pushed aside, but your Holy Spirit has drawn their attention to it again. Lord, give us hope. Hope that comes by virtue of seeing that you are a God who gives grace. May our loyalty be for you. May our purity, Lord, be in process for your glory. And Lord, may we be serious about how we view sin in our life. We don't take it lightly, we take it seriously, but Lord, we we embrace the restoration and forgiveness that only you provide. Strengthen us today, we ask in your precious name, amen.